This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today, wherever you listen to podcasts. Blue Wire. With the first pick in the 2009 NFL Draft, the Detroit Lions select Matthew Stafford. Welcome to another episode of the Michael Rothstein Show. I am your host, Michael Rothstein, and hey, let's just jump right into it. Yesterday's episode was a giant mailbag episode, went through about an hour's worth of questions, and we still had more. So in the back half of this show, we're going to get to some more of those questions that you had. I think some of them are going to be repeats of what you heard yesterday, but there's some new and other questions in there too. But I want to start here as we start really jumping into the game planning portion of the week for facing Green Bay on the road in Lambeau. And there's a few things I want to hit on here that we're going to just get right into. And we will start with the obvious, which is Detroit's cornerback situation. And while we won't know until later today what the true situation is with Desmond Trufant and Jeff Okuda, the fact that Justin Coleman went on injured reserve is not a great sign. That means that they won't have him until at least after the bye. Remember that injured reserve rules are now three weeks instead of essentially six or seven or eight, depending uh, on short-term situations. But three weeks and then he can come off. So he would absolutely miss the games against Green Bay, Arizona, and New Orleans. Then the Lions have a bye. So the earliest that he could return would be against Jacksonville in week six. From a couple of people I spoke with around Coleman, it sounds like the hope is that he'll only miss three games. But as it was put to me, you just never know. So that's kind of, I think, where things stand with Justin Coleman. But what does that mean for the Lions when they're hindering this stretch of good facing good passing teams between Aaron Rodgers, Devontae Adams, and the Packers, Kyler Murray, DeAndre Hopkins, and the Cardinals, and then Drew Brees, Michael Thomas, and the Saints? Well, it means that you're going to be relying potentially a lot on Jeff Okuda. Now, the Desmond Trufant question will loom large here because Trufant obviously is a veteran. He has more experience. Frankly, probably even more helpful in week four if he can get back by then because of the familiarity of facing the Saints so many times. So he probably understands that nuances of that Saints offense way more than any other defender that they're going to have, especially at the corner position. So for me, Trufant, it would be important for him to get back way before week four, but you really want him on the field for week four because he's able to understand Drew Brees and Michael Thomas and what Sean Payton likes to do better than anybody else, probably including even some of the coaching staff that's out there because of that year upon year upon year of experience going against them twice a year. But if they don't have Trufant, that's going to cause a big problem because then your number one corner is either Amani Awarie or, if he gets back, Jeff Okuda. Now, of course, people will say, yeah, like they drafted Okuda at number three overall. He should be able to be the number one corner. But no, that's not the case at all. Even if he came in and was great and looked sharp, you do not want him to be your number one corner in week one and week two of his rookie season without a preseason and without the spring. There's too much inconsistency that's going to be there. There's too much chance of him getting beat, especially when you're facing the caliber of receiver that he would be facing as a potential number one corner early on. It's not like they're facing kind of a lower level 
unit of receivers, although when you look around the league, there's very few places that have that, but you can say, you know, there are there are places and there are holes that you can face with teams. Maybe their quarterback isn't as strong. Maybe their receivers aren't quite as good. These next three teams have the elite of the elite receiver and in at least two of the three cases, and we'll see what happens with Kyler Murray here, the elite of the elite quarterback as well. So if Desmond Trufant can't go, then you're looking at a theoretical either Amani Awarie and Daryl Roberts or Amani Awarie and Jeff Okuda cornerback situation. And that, to me, is a major, major problem, especially if, as Corey Undling kind of suggested a little bit, you're hoping that the coverage can hold out to help the pass rush. And that is, in my, in some ways, I think a backwards way of thinking. With the injuries you have at corner right now, that's a very dangerous way of thinking when it comes to Aaron Rodgers. And I think that that's part of the problem, potentially, for Detroit. Now, I thought Daryl Roberts held his own, but you're probably going to maybe need Daryl Roberts in the slot as well, although maybe you end up counting on Tony McRae in the slot. Either way, you're down a lot of corners. I would imagine at least one corner ends up coming in. They're going to, they've been working out corners. They have an empty roster spot. It makes a lot of sense. And it's a position that we talked about a little bit yesterday. I wrote about it uh, for ESPN on Monday that this position went from maybe their deepest or their second deepest, depending how you view receiver, to maybe their thinnest on the roster in the span of 10 days, which is baffling to me. Mike Ford, Justin Coleman on IR, Jeff Okuda, Desmond Trufant injured, and their statuses are unknown. And all of a sudden it's Amani Awari, Daryl Roberts, Tony McRae, and TBD cornerback to be named later as guys that are healthy right now. Now, Jalen Watkins, I believe, is a name that I've seen thrown out there, and he obviously has experience with Corey Undlin. So maybe that is, at least from a short-term perspective, makes some sense. It's also entirely possible, as you're looking at what they could do in the secondary, that you run a lot more three-safety looks. Now, sure, that probably means a lot more of Tracy Walker covering potentially slot receivers and in some cases, that might be a really tough matchup and a, a mismatch for a slot receiver depending on what opponent it is that they are facing with Justin Coleman being out. But I think in a lot of cases, it could also be a situation where that's a little bit of an advantage for the Lions because Walker is very physical. He is very long and rangy, more so than some of the other slot corner type players that they have, like say even Justin Coleman that it will offer a different look that opposing offenses will not have seen right away. So that could end up being somewhat of an advantage for the Lions early on against Green Bay, except Aaron Rodgers is one of the best dissectors of defenses in the NFL. So I think that that gets negated. All of that we're talking about here with coverage, however, comes back to the pass rush, where if they don't get a pass rush, it's not going to matter who's necessarily in the secondary because that secondary is going to get lit up and right now their front seven is having some major issues when it comes to getting to the passer Trey Flowers is the only defensive lineman to record a quarterback hit he also had a sack he looks like he's rounding into form and he looks like he's going to maybe be the player that they had hoped he would be from the start of last season when he was kind of working slowly off of injury but you really have to wonder what's going on with the interior of the defensive line, which, again, we've talked about over and over again on this podcast as the major problem here. I know that on yesterday's show, we talked a little bit about possible guys that they could bring in. I don't see them doing that this week at this point. I think they've got to really focus on replenishing their corner position at this point this week, and then you can kind of go from there, and you just have to go with the guys you have. Maybe they end up making Kevin Strong one of those like two guys that gets called up on the active roster from the practice squad. Maybe you do that if you're the Lions, and you maybe make Kevin Strong active, kind of similar to how the Lions ended up making Kenny Wiggins active against the Bears last week. That might be a way to try and solve some of those pass rush issues. But on the whole, it's just one of those situations of, I think the Lions have enough problems right now defensively that you don't really know exactly where to begin. And if that sounds familiar, it's because that's been 
I think, an issue for the Lions for a large portion of Matt Patricia's tenure when you've looked at their defense and some of the issues in coverage and some of the issues in pass rush. Corey Oogland, of course, in what is a tried-and-true trope at this point, and that is that it's not only the defensive line that lives in to the pass rush, that it also comes to the linebackers, it comes to the coverage, and while all of that is true, it still comes down at the end of the day to the fact that you need your front four to be able to, or front three and pass rusher to be able to get home. You need to, especially if you're not going to blitz a ton, you need that to happen. And the Lions, once again, did not have that happen against the Bears. And that has been a trend under Matt Patricia, without a doubt. And that's, again, part of, I think, the problem when you look at this Lions defense as a whole. Because here's the other thing that you need to know when it comes to to how the Lions handled Mitchell Trubisky. Again, they thought I thought they did a good job for three quarters, but it really, they really struggled in the fourth. Well, here's the reality. Mitchell Trubisky still had a 104.2 passer rating. He still had 2.67 seconds as the time, in average time in the pocket, which if you look at how that went across the league, that he had the second most time in the pocket, across the league, tied with Lamar Jackson, behind only Baker Mayfield. Now, obviously, Baker Mayfield didn't do that much when it came to the Browns, but they were also playing a really, really good team. Mr. Trubisky was playing the Lions, but again, only he had 2.67 seconds time in the pocket, and he had 2.99 seconds average before he threw the ball, and that ended up being fourth in the league, Last week, and you look at the three quarterbacks who were ahead of him, Josh Allen, who can move the ball and move his feet. Lamar Jackson, we all know what he can do and how he can create space. And Baker Mayfield again. So the Lions clearly were not getting to Mr. Trubisky in time to really affect that type of work from him. And that was a problem that, if you read my story last week, was an issue when you looked at Mr. Trubisky. And now you're going to face Aaron Rodgers, and guess what? That, I think, is even more of a potential concern because of what Aaron Rodgers is capable of doing to you on a play-to-play basis, and we've seen that over and over and over again when he's played the Lions. The Lions did show some aggression, so let's give them some credit there. They did blitz Mitchell Trubisky on seven plays, according to ESPN Stats and Information, in what I believe was 39 dropbacks. So that's not a terrible percentage. I still think they could have blitzed him more to really try and force the issue. But that's not a terrible number considering where the Lions have been in the past. The Lions ended up blitzing 17.9% of their dropbacks, which is tied for 7th lowest in the NFL. But you know what you're getting from the Lions to begin with. That's actually not a bad number when it's combined with what they typically had done against Trubisky, which was blitz on less than 10% of his dropbacks. So it showed a little bit more aggression from the Lions there. Obviously, that aggression didn't show up in the second half, but or really the fourth quarter. But it showed like that they were at least doing a little bit to potentially try and cause some problems for Mitchell Trubisky early on, at least within the game. And again, maybe that's something you can look at and say, okay, maybe you can build on that if you're the Lions defensively, but you also have to figure out a way to handle Aaron Rodgers, Kyler Murray, and Drew Brees because they'll present much more difficult challenges than Mitchell Trubisky. But let's also get into, again, some of that man versus zone that we talked about a little bit, and obviously Mr. Trubisky talked about after the game that the Lions were doing a better job of disguising things, and then they went to man later in the game. I asked Corey Undlin about that on Tuesday, and he said that, yeah, they did go a little bit more to man late, especially in the red zone. Well, here are some numbers again, courtesy of ESPN Stats and Information. The Lions played more man defense than any team in the NFL last week. 82.1% of their defensive dropbacks were man-to-man defense which obviously then leads to what it would be in zone. And in zone, that was a league low, 
17.9% of defensive dropbacks. Now, how did the teams how did Trubisky do against those? Well, he threw all three of his touchdown passes against man, continuing again the trend that he had shown the past two years, although he only completed 55.2% of his passes against man. Again, zone, the Lions were actually much more effective. Again, smaller sample size as he only he only took seven passes against zone, but he completed four of them, 57.1%. But he also threw no touchdowns against zone. Again, much smaller sample size to work with. However, it showed that maybe that was just a little bit more effective as far as man versus zone and scoring. And that was the theme all along for the Lions when they went against Mitchell Trubisky. We'll be right back after this break. To break down the rest of your mailbag questions and maybe set up the week a little bit going forward, thanks for listening to the Michael Rothstein Show. This football season will be different, and Pepsi is here to get you ready for game day no matter how you watch this season, whether you're in a city that has some fans or you're just at home watching the Lions or watching the Bears or watching the Packers. More than likely, if you're listening to this show, watching the Lions – And I get it. You're going to want some carbonated beverage to help you through it. Pepsi's the refreshment you need to power through game day and become a member of the League of Football Watchers. These passionate fans are the real generational talent that Pepsi fuels because Pepsi isn't made for those who play the game. It's made for those who watch it. Pepsi, made for football watching. And even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier. Like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times, that's three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Now, back to our show. Welcome back to the show. And as I said, in the back end of here, we're going to try and clean up just the rest of the questions that we didn't quite get to in yesterday's podcast. We'll start with Aaron Majewski, who's at Juice219. Just as her mother did, will Sheila Ford ask Roger Goodell for help in finding her GM replacement? So that's kind of a misnomer. She didn't ask Roger Goodell for help, but more of a consultant that had run a team before to help advise them on the process. And that was when they brought in Ernie Accorsi as an advisor. Obviously, he pointed out Bob Quinn, and we all know where that has gone from there. I think, and again, I don't know the answer to this question, and there's no reason to do this yet because they haven't made any moves and we still don't know if they're going to make any moves. It's, again, a long season and just one game. However, I would think that between Sheila Ford Hamp and Rod Wood, they both have a lot more experience now around the league. Don't forget when they made this move, Sheila Ford Hamp was still a vice chairman helping out her mom. Rod Wood had not even been hired yet or had been on the job for like a month, basically, and had not had any prior football experience. I think both of these guys, both Rod Wood and Sheila Fordham will now have a lot more football experience and understanding of what maybe they are looking for. If they bring in an advisor to help, sure, why not? Because if anything, it kind of gives them a buffer 
in talking to people and, and kind of gauging interest and not wasting time and not going through all of that and not un, not dissimilar for hentai, like when teams use or colleges rather sorry that was a little bit messed up colleges rather use kind of the search firms and when businesses and corporations use headhunting firms i don't think it's anything dissimilar to that if they do bring in an advisor at the end of the day it's gonna be sheila ford hamp and maybe rod wood's decision on what they're going to do if they do make any changes whether it's at head coach or general manager or anything in between and i don't think it hurts to have another voice that has some experience in there. But I don't know what they would do. And, and again, that is not something that's been broached yet. And I don't think it will be broached until there is a move if there ends up being one. Larry M., who's at Larry more or less, who might they target in a trade to address their pass rush? This needs to be bolstered immediately. I think it's probably too early to look at trades, probably by a couple of weeks, maybe. Let's talk about that a little bit more at the buy. So don't forget to re-ask that if the pass rush problem is still relevant because then at that point you're a little bit closer to the trade deadline i think that it's probably again a week or two too early to really be discussing trades because teams are still feeling themselves out they need to see what their injury situations are going to be and you kind of go from there and see if there's somebody who's fallen out of favor if there's a rookie that's really flashed that's maybe pushed a veteran to the bubble and maybe you can make some moves here and there but it also, I think, is going to depend, too, on where the Lions stand. Because if they're not in a good position at that point, I don't see them making a move to bring in a player. Just because I don't, especially if it's a player that has some sort of salary attached to them, because I don't know if how well ownership would feel about that if it looks like things might not end well at the end of the season. So I think that so much of that is still remains to be seen, whether they'll be in a position to sell or in a position to maybe buy or in a position to make any sort of move at the deadline. Bob Quinn has been active at the deadline. Basically every year he's been in Detroit. Last year they traded Quandre Diggs. The year before that they traded Golden Tate. They traded four snacks Harrison. He got rid of Kyle Van Noy around the deadline in the past. So he's not opposed to making moves. There's no doubt about that. Whether they've gone well or not is up to how your interpretation of it is. But I think that they'll look at it if they feel like it's something that they can make a move on. But right now, I think it's probably a week or two too early to really even siphon that out from looking at other teams around the league. I think things need to settle down a little bit first. Corey, who's at W3GoBlue, says we're seeing injuries pile up a lot with this team again. Is this a strength and conditioning issue or just coincidence? We've talked about this again on the podcast yesterday, but I'll mention it briefly that it's a league-wide problem. I don't think it's a strength and conditioning issue when it comes to the strength and conditioning staffs within teams. I think it's an overall strength and conditioning issue with the way that players are being asked to play, and that's through no fault of the players or the coaches. But going from the intensity they went to to full game, full speed, high intensity, high cuts, high ramp up, wheel down, as fast as they have to do these things it's going to lead to soft tissue injuries. It's going to lead to hamstring pulls. It's going to, in some cases, lead to much more catastrophic injuries, but you hope that you don't see any of those. I think it's why you're going to see a lot of teams, including the Lions, be more cautious with these injuries early on because you don't want them to linger. You want them to heal. It's very similar to when a player gets an ankle injury early in the season. You know, Remember Calvin Johnson would get those ankle injuries toward the end of his career in the first half of the season. and It would sideline him a little bit, but you didn't want to push him and rush him back because you knew you might need him down in the end of the season where those games might matter a little bit more. So to me, I think it's a similar situation for the Lions where, and other teams across the league where you're not going to push it in week one or week two because you don't want that same player to be dealing with something in week seven or week eight or week nine. Billy Smith, who's at BS Measy, asks, what was the status of, our, of the injured cornerbacks after the game? Well, Justin Coleman, as we addressed at the top of the podcast, is now on injured reserve. We'll know a little bit more about Desmond Trufant here and Jeff Okuda here on Wednesday, whether or not they practice or not, 
haven't been given any real indication one way or the other on that. And I think that in some ways, the Lions probably don't even know yet because hamstring injuries can heal and you can kind of see them pop back and be better in a somewhat quick span of time, depending on the severity. So I think that's still going to be a question mark. What I will tell you to watch is if guys like Kenny Galladay, and I'll throw him in here just because of his import, Okuda and Trufant, if they do not practice on Wednesday, that's not a great sign. I think you need to see them at least in a limited practice situation by Thursday at the latest to really feel any sort of confidence about them playing on Sunday against Green Bay. Because again, you don't want to rush it if you're the Lions. Frankly, especially with Kenny Galladay, because you have other options on offense that are successful. Marvin Jones usually feasts on the Packers, for instance. TJ Hawkinson, I thought, had a really good day. But in your secondary, you also don't really want to push it because the last thing you want to do is rush back a Desmond Trufant or a Jeff Okuda, guys that you know you're going to need throughout the season, and then have them pop a hamstring again or re-injure it and re-pull it, and then they're they're going on IR for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, and then all of a sudden you're you're starting to get real thin for a longer period of time. But again, that's something that we'll have to see how that goes, and that's going to be something that's going to be monitored, I think, really league-wide. I know, again, I've said that a few times over the next few days. Lionhearted, who's at LionHEA92634285. That's impressive if you're not a bot. Can we defund the Lions and direct the funds toward the Tigers' rebuild? No. You can't. Doesn't quite work that way. Different ownership groups. Same city, obviously. So totally get that. But different ownership groups, just, it's not going to happen. But I see where you're going with it. And, you know, it'd be really interesting. It'd be a fun project to say, well, if you could take funds from one team and divert them to another to help make that one team really good, what would you want to do? You know, we're going to play this game here for a second. And I don't know what you do if you are looking in Detroit, what you'd want. Would you rather, you know, kind of divert more money to the Tigers because of kind of the looser salary cap restrictions? So maybe you can buy your way out of the rebuild quicker and bring in some veterans? Or would you want to look at the Lions where it's a strict salary cap, so bringing more money in won't really help one way or the other? Then there are the Pistons and the Wings where those salary cap situations are so much different. And in hockey, it really helps to have some, a lot of homegrown talent. And with the NBA, uh, you know, I mean, one or two guys can make such a big difference. So maybe you divert funds there and try to build around Blake Griffin, I guess, for the next year or two. And, and maybe some of the younger guys, uh, you know, like Christian Wood or, or Luke Kennard. I, I don't know the answer to those questions. I would probably say that, you know, maybe you would want to give someone, divert some funds just because of the cap situation. But I don't know. That's a weird question. Uh, I know it's probably meant facetiously, but now you've got me thinking about it. That may even be a full future podcast episode, depending on how this season goes. Next question comes from Jeff Rombach. At Jeff Rombach, where is Jesse James? How well did Decker and Crosby do with Khalil Mack? Is Cephas a technician like Okuda says based on tape? Will you be on Patricia's Christmas card list this year? Okay, a whole bunch of questions in there from Jeff. We'll start with the last one. No, I do not imagine I'll be on Matt Patricia's Christmas card list this year. I think we get along a lot better than obviously we did in year one where we had our massive battles during press conferences But no, I mean, I don't think I'm his favorite person in the world. I have no problem with Matt Patricia as far as how I deal with him on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, if I I was worried about coaches going in on me or or getting angry at me, I would have gotten out of this business a long time ago. So I don't worry about that. Uh, Plus, obviously, I don't celebrate Christmas. So that is another reason why maybe I wouldn't get a Christmas card. But... Yeah, uh, I think it's uh, yeah. That's just kind of where that relationship is. I think it's always, there's always going to be a little bit of an adversarial nature to it uh, when you're asking questions that question someone's job when something's not going well. And I think that's true in any profession. Where is Jesse James? Well, I can tell you he's on the 53 man roster. I can tell you he played a lot on Sunday, but yeah, he just wasn't involved again. And and with each passing game, it looks like that might be Bob Quinn's worst free agent signing for so, so many reasons. I think there's still time for Jesse James to turn it around. But 
like the Lions it's themselves, and the trends are out there, and the trend for Jesse James is that he just hasn't been used and hasn't really had much of a role at all, much like you look at the Lions and their trend of losing fourth-quarter leads. So at this point, if I'm the Lions, I can't really – or if I'm a Lions fan, I can't really expect much out of Jesse James because it just hasn't been there now for over a season. And TJ Hawkinson looked so good that you have to figure he's going to play as many plays as possible and you're going to want to get him as much work, which could further lessen Jesse James's workload. The other interesting part will be, listen, they didn't put Hunter Bryan on injured reserve, right? So that means they feel like he might be closer to back than one might even think because you would have thought that maybe they would have put him on IR once you can because there's no harm, no foul to put him on there for four weeks, you know, five weeks if that's what it's going to take. If Hunter Bryant becomes available, then he might even leapfrog Jesse James at some point. Now, he doesn't have the blocking skills that Jesse James does, but as a pass catcher, he is quite good and quite gifted. And that could be something to watch. So if I'm Jesse James, I don't know what my role is at this point. One would think maybe more of a blocking tight end, but you didn't sign him to really be that blocking tight end. If you did that, you would have maybe signed a different type of tight end. How well did Taylor Decker and Tyrell Crosby do with Khalil Mack? I thought they did well. Listen, Khalil Mack didn't register a sack. So that's a win right there. You can hold Khalil Mack sackless. I mean, I think you take that in any game, right? Like, without a doubt, I don't care whether he's beat up a little bit. I don't care if he was questionable going into a game. Khalil Mack is a dynamic, dynamic defensive player. And I thought the Lions handled him pretty well. Just in case you're curious, Khalil Mack's stat line on Sunday, right, was this. He had four tackles, and that's it. So not only did he not get a sack, he didn't even touch the quarterback. If you're the Lions, you take that every time you play the Bears. That's a win right there. And I think that that shows the progress that Taylor Decker specifically has made and also that they do have somebody that they can count on a little bit in Tyrell Crosby. I thought both tackles played fairly well and they ran the ball well. That's why when you listened to this podcast last week and I said I didn't think there was that big of a drop-off necessarily from Vitae to Crosby, I think you saw why here on... Sunday because I thought Crosby handled himself pretty well and I thought Taylor Decker handled himself very well. So Tyrell Crosby is a good option for you to have if you're the Lions as right now you're swing tackle but maybe ending up being something more at some point. The last question is Cephas technician like Okuda says based on tape. Uh, that's a tough question to answer, mostly because I think this was a really tough spot for Quintus Cephas to be in. He was force-fed a lot of targets that would have gone to Kenny Galladay otherwise. Frankly, and I know I said it, and this is something I was wrong about, and I'll admit it, I thought that they would feature Marvin Hall a lot more than Quintez Cephas. I'm actually fairly surprised that they did not do that. Obviously, Cephas offers more of a possession-type receiver than Marvin Hall does, who's more of a game-breaker. I thought you'd see a lot more of Marvin Hall and a lot less of Quintus Cephas, and it's entirely possible if Kenny Galladay doesn't play on Sunday, you do see more Marvin Hall this coming week because three catches on 10 targets is not great. Some of that was on Cephas. Some of that was just on communication that Cephas and Stafford are still learning each other. I think that you're seeing some potential, and you saw a lot of potential during camp, and I think the guy wants to be good. But it's going to, like with any other position, take a while to get there. But I think probably Cephas, we haven't talked to him since the game ended. But I'm imagining he probably learned a lot in week one. Michael O'Connell, who's at Mike underscore O'Connell, asked, what bars are open 24 hours? Sorry, man, I don't have the answer to that. I don't think any bars in Detroit are open 24 hours. Uh, I can't say because I don't really frequent bars in Detroit all that often. I also don't drink. So I I don't know the answer to that question. I can tell you that if you're in Las Vegas, I think you're in a good spot. But also, I don't know these days what that looks like. Same thing in New Orleans. But again, with COVID, not sure what that looks like. Depends where you are, man. But I uh, hope you're having a good time no matter what. Mazor, who's at TJ underscore Mazor, who should take the majority of the blame for the loss? Head coach, defensive coordinator, players. How long did the Harris starting last? Seems like he got beat a lot. Were they doubling Marvin as he wasn't involved as much as you would think? Thoughts on Jared Davis, I think. 
Okay, that's again a lot of questions. We're going to try and hit all of them quickly. I think everybody gets blamed for this loss. Definitely Matt Patricia. Definitely some on Corey Lynn. Definitely some on the players who made some poor decisions. Obviously, DeAndre Swift drops a ball. There are a couple dropped interceptions. Matthew Stafford throws an interception. Matthew Stafford takes a bad sack. Matt Prater misses a field goal. All of those things roll in. You know, Romeo Quara had a bad face mask penalty. All those things roll in. Harris starting, I think that they have a plan, it seems like. I don't know how great that plan is, although I thought it worked pretty well in the first half. And, you know, obviously on this podcast, I made a big deal of Tracy Walker not starting. And I don't know why you don't start Tracy Walker, but Tracy Walker basically from the second series on was on the field for almost every play. And they use him in a variety of different roles, down in the box, up high. And I think you're good. And I think they used him in a lot of ways to disguise what they were going to do defensively. I think you'll see a lot more of that going forward, especially with Justin Coleman being on injured reserve. It would not shock me if they went more to a three safety look, maybe even as their base nickel package, because Tracy Walker can cover. So I think that that can offer them some help there and maybe some more flexibility and more ability to disguise. So I would imagine that Will Harris still plays a lot and sees a good amount of time. But I, you know, as far as the starting thing goes, if you're going to play Tracy Walker as much as you did, then I don't know if it matters whether or not he's a quote-unquote starter or not because he's clearly an impactful player on your defense. But we'll see as the season goes on. Were they doubling Marvin Jones as much as you think? You know, I didn't really notice how much Marvin was getting doubled. Uh, there was so much going on, and, you know, there's so much you're trying to pick up in week one. And I'll admit that, you know, week one usually ends up being a little bit of a of a tire fire when it comes to trying to keep track of everything. So I didn't quite notice whether Marvin was being doubled all that much. I mean, obviously he didn't have a massive day, but, you know, when the receiver opposite you is Quintus Cephas – or Marvin Hall instead of Kenny Galladay, you're going to definitely get more attention. And I think that absolutely is part of what happened. And my thoughts on linebacker play, eh. I mean, I think that that's the best answer I can give you. I mean, eh. like it was okay. I thought that, you know, Jared Davis still should not be in coverage ever at any point, but I think he's shown some skill as a run stopper and as a guy who can rush the passer. When you look at the quarterback hits, right, they got one, two, one from Christian Jones and one from Reggie Ragland when it comes to linebackers. But that was also half of their quarterback hits. The others came from Trey Flowers and from Deron Harmon. I mean, Davis had four tackles, didn't really record any other statistics. He also played a lot less than he usually would. They rotated him in. And I think it's tough to judge the linebacker play in general because they did lose Jamie Collins in the second quarter on a boneheaded play of his own doing. But I think that altered some of maybe what they were trying to do schematically, defensively on Sunday. So that makes it a little bit tough to read. Again, I think we're going to get a better read, say, after week three on what this team really is. Danny Shapiro is at Chap Danny. Can you give us any reason to hope or believe? We talked again about this a little bit on the podcast yesterday. Yeah, I mean, I think you can believe in this offense. I thought they moved the ball pretty well. They still put up 23 points even without Kenny Galladay. Adrian Peterson looks like he's still got a lot left. I thought TJ Hawkinson looked really, really good. I thought Stafford on the whole looked fairly sharp. Sure, he made some mistakes there at the end. But I think that that was him forcing things a little bit when the defense was collapsing. Uh, Jack Fox looked good as a punter. Jamal Agnew looks like he's really sharp as a returner. So I think there are things that you can build on if you are the Lions. I thought the line held up fairly well against Stafford. was only sacked once, and they ran the ball for uh, in total over 100 yards. So all of those things are positives for the Lions, and we'll see what happens. Remember, don't forget, they were very close to winning that game, although they should have, you know, the fact they were very close to winning that game after having a 17-point lead is, the problem and would have been the problem even if they had won. But I think there are some positives you can pull. Just most of them are probably on the offensive side of the ball because the defense right now, other than maybe Trey Flowers and Tracy Walker, looks like it's uh, it's kind of not in a good spot. Eric Hippelfan, who's at Spleen95 Short BR, does a mandate still exist to play meaningful games in December this year? Or will that just be forgiven because this isn't a typical year? 
That is a very fair question. And while we don't know the answer 100% for sure, right? Like that's just not something that we're going to know until we get to a point where a decision has to be made one way or the other. I go back to what Sheila Ford-Hamp said during her first press conference in June when she got the job. And I'm going to pull that quote up for you now. So this is what she said. And I'm going to quote from her the one time she's talked publicly back in June. She was asked if she can clarify the mandate from ownership on the 2020 season, making it a win-now scenario. This was her quote. Quote, well, as I said, I think this is going to be kind of a weird year, so I don't want to say anything about wins and losses. I think the overarching thing is that we want to see major improvement. At this point, I can't really say what those specific measures are going to be because I don't know what the season is going to be like yet. But believe me, major improvement is a goal. End quote. So, sure, wins and losses, that makes sense. But I think that that was never going to be a massive thing. Yeah, it will matter at the end of the day. But... You know, 10 and 6 and not making the playoffs probably keeps them, or 7 and 9 and making the playoffs maybe doesn't if you get blown out in the first round, especially with the extra wild card position. And that's always been, I think they need to be playing meaningful games in December. They need to show overall competitiveness and, frankly, that they can win games and show improvement. And after game one, you can say that they didn't really show improvement from last year at this point, but they have 15 games to go because they lost. The same way that they lost, real well, the same way that they tied a year ago in the same spot, and now they've had three straight games dating back to last season where they've lost fourth quarter leads and lost those games. So no, I would say at this point, no, they haven't shown major improvement, but I still believe that that is a metric that you can really buy into when it comes to whether or not these people, whether or not Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia will be back in 2021. Andrew Wink, who's at Andrew Wink. First question, just why? First answer, I, I, I don't know, man. I just got nothing for you. Uh, Master Magoo, who's at Master Magoo, asked, why would anyone ever switch to man against Trubisky in the fourth after zone works so well all game, then stick with it after the first two touchdowns? I think we hit on that a little bit, that really what they were playing a large Majority of the time wasn't like a true, true zone, but I think it was more of a uh, mixed man zone, a better disguised man-to-man defense with some more zone principles in there, a little bit maybe the zone one. And that was part of it. And yeah, like that's how I kind of see it versus like true zone defense that we're used to seeing. Uh, the numbers, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, are, are pretty stark that they were playing a man. So I just think they went to a different type of man, more of a straight-up man-to-man there toward the end, which, again, problematic because of what you've been dealing with all game long and how you had flustered Mr. Trubisky before that. Uh, Murtime asks, why should fans believe anything he says about this team, meaning Patricia being different or that he is a good coach, results vastly worse than Caldwell, who was fired because 9-7 and wasn't good enough. Patricia is a good coach because Malcolm Butler made a play. Man, I'm with you. I don't don't think fans should believe necessarily what they're saying. You know, I, I believed it because of what I heard from the players and what I saw and I've covered enough things that you can hear certain things. And I do believe there are aspects of this team that are different. I do believe that they are closer than some of Matt Patricia's other teams as far as togetherness. I believe that they have some better pieces than they did a season ago. Also some worse pieces, particularly at corner. Still think they have the same problems that they did a season ago on the defensive line. And if I was a fan... I would be incredibly skeptical about anything I heard right now until you prove it on the field. And that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. The Lions have to prove something for you to be able to really believe in them. It's gotten to that point with Matt Patricia. There should be no benefit of the doubt anymore. That should have gone away a long time ago. You shouldn't have that. You should need to see results. And I think that everybody in the organization understands that or should understand it. I think ownership understands that based off the way Sheila Fordhamp talked in June, and you as a fan probably should feel the same way. Don't buy into what they're necessarily saying because if it's not translating the wins and losses to wins on Sundays, then it doesn't really matter. You can say all the things you want and 
have all the well-meaning dagger time type situations that you maybe will have. But if you're not winning games on Sunday, it's really not going to matter at the end of the day at all. Like, at all. Motown Man, who's at Lots of Luke asks, how long will the Lions stay with Patricia if they start 1-3 and three or 0-4? Then will they fire him? Or will management likely wait till the season's end regardless? And if they fire him, then do they also fire Quinn at the same time? We talked about this at the end of yesterday's podcast. I'm not going to get too much into this after one game. Uh, I, I think that there could be some interesting decisions that maybe they would have to make if they start 0-4. I think 1-3, and 3, maybe not, because at this point you're probably beating one of the better teams in the NFC if you're winning one of these next three games and you know you can point to hey this and that was a fluke even though we've seen the trends and again with it being such a strange year and so many other things going along I think that there's a little bit more give than maybe there would be in other years but I could be wrong I don't know what's in Sheila Ford Ham's head when you're making some of these decisions if they do get to that one and three oh and four situation just don't know, and I don't know what they would do. Don't forget that even though it is an early buy, they do have that mini buy after Thanksgiving. We've seen the Lions make moves after Thanksgiving before, and maybe you see that because you get a better handle on the season, and if it's not going well at all, that gives you a little bit less of time that you need to worry about an interim person because that's the thing. If you do get make massive changes at 0-4 or 1-3, you're... You're taking a chance that maybe it'll salvage the season, but if you make too many changes, you're also basically giving up on that season. And that's a bad look to send to players in a locker room. And I think that that comes into play as well, especially, again, because it is such a different type of year than it has been in years past. This is not a normal season. Plus, everything that I think Matt Patricia has done to make people in the locker room believe in him more, that I think that that would potentially send a worse message than if it had happened in prior years as well. And I think that that could come into play as well. But again, as we talked about, it's all going to come down to wins and losses for the Lions. We're just going to answer a couple more here. Pride Time B is at Dream Big B twenty one. What does Patricia's one moment in the past Super Bowl have to do with the Lions blowing fourth quarter leads in recent years? Then he thanks me for not sugarcoating my questions. It should have nothing to do with it at all. I think it was a moment of weakness from Patricia. I think it was a question that he maybe didn't want to answer. Um, and and I get that. I mean, it's tough. It's an emotional situation. You're being questioned about your performance in the moments after. A gut-wrenching loss. I understand all of that from a human level. But his what happened with Malcolm Butler, which was honestly just a great play by Malcolm Butler, has no bearing on what's going on with the Lions right now. And, I mean, if you really want to dig into it, the guy who made the poor offensive call is Daryl Bevel, who is your offensive coordinator, who's done quite well for you as the offensive coordinator. So I don't really know the the impetus behind why Matt Patricia said that other than maybe just out of frustration. And I get it. Like, it's not easy to answer questions about your coaching and your job in moments after a loss that was brutal. I get that wholeheartedly. But to answer your question, one should have nothing to do with another at all. JB, who's at Lions Roar 99, why does Patricia play not to lose instead of staying aggressive and try to get a couple first downs and win the game? I don't really know the answer to that question. We've asked that before in some ways, shapes, and forms over the last couple of years, and I don't think there's ever been a really good answer. I think that you know they look at it situationally, is what they would say, and they try to figure things out from there. But I think in some cases they have been aggressive in some games. Doesn't always work out, but I think that they've been aggressive in some games. Uh, I didn't think that they were totally unaggressive, especially with the way Adrian Peterson had been running on Sunday. I, I don't think that they went into a complete shell because all they needed was Peterson to break one, and it's not out of their own possibility considering that he'd broken two or three earlier in the game for a first down. That would extend a drive, and that's really all they needed in a lot of ways. But... I, I would agree on the whole that, you know, there is that problem for the Lions. And 
The last question will come from Tan Wasniewski, who's at Wasniewski. Stafford has been a great teammate. You can't blame it all on him, but is he a winner? Not can he... Sorry, I'm just going to butcher this. Not can he do some impressive things, but is he a winner? His record says no. Listen, I, I think he's shown the capabilities of being a winner. It goes beyond just the offense. Again, I don't think the offense was the problem on Sunday by any stretch of the imagination. They made some mistakes late. Stafford has a ton of fourth quarter comebacks in his career. I believe the number's 28. So he's shown in the past that he can make winning plays. Uh, I think he's shown it almost every year and under almost every coach. I think there have been less opportunities for him to show this in this regime because the Lions just haven't won as many games. Now, some of that can go to coaching. Some of that can go to defensive performance. Some of that can go to offensive performance. And some of that can go on Stafford for sure. But I think he has it in him. I think you've seen that in the past. I think you saw it when Jim Caldwell was the coach here. I think you saw it in some ways when Jim Schwartz was the coach here. Remember, he's the, he's the guy that back in 2013, and in some ways I'm doing what Patricia was doing where you're pointing something out, right? But I think it shows that he has that capability in him. When he made the call that no one else knew he was going to make by fake spiking and jumping over the pile, that's a, a risky call that like you know you're going to be the hero or the goat. And he made that. That was obviously the Dallas game where they won in the final seconds, and that really set up maybe where people thought that that team in 2013 could be something special, and they had things going until they collapsed at the end of that season that led to Jim Schwartz's firing. So I think Matthew Stafford has it in him. I think he's shown enough times that he does, and the talent level is without a doubt there. But at some point, and and this is, I think, the bigger question with Matthew Stafford if things go south this season for the Lions as a whole, is at some point, do you just need to move on because you've made a good faith run, a good faith effort, and it might just be better for all parties involved to start over? And that, I think, will be one of the tougher conversations to have organizationally if things go south this year. And, you know, it's way too early to have that conversation. But if things go poorly, I think it's going to be one of many, many conversations that end up happening on this podcast towards the end of the season of what happens with Matthew Stafford in his future. But I do believe that he can win, and I do believe that he can win big. Just might, just he's had some really unfortunate situations around him that he doesn't have any control over. He can't control the defense all of a sudden falling apart like it's done many, many times before. He literally has no control over that. And he can't control some of the play calling. He can't control a missed field goal. He can't control a dropped pass. There's a lot that he can't control. I think what he does control, he ends up doing fairly well. So with that, that's the end of today's podcast. I really appreciate y'all sticking around for it. I know we went probably a little bit long again, but there were just so many questions from last week, and I wanted to try and hit as many of them as I possibly could. Plus, there was obviously some things to talk about at the beginning of the podcast. Thanks, as always, to my sponsors, Regents Field, Bet Online, Indeed, and Pepsi. Thanks to Blue Wire for hosting this podcast. Don't forget, leave us a five-star review. Download, subscribe to this podcast if you'd be so kind, and we will talk with you tomorrow. The wait is over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today. And get, take advantage of all of the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts.